Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Movie Scramble podcast. We actually have a full house again tonight. We're just treating you too much these days. I mean, what else are we going to do? We're still in lockdown. It's raining. Speak to our loved ones. That's just crazy talk. We don't expect you to do the same either. We expect you to listen to this podcast. You can speak to your wife and husband and whoever, whenever. It's not if you're doing anything else. But tonight, I am joined by Mary. And how the devil are you? As I said to you, I'm slightly terrified that my lockdown weight has caught up with me and I'm about to break this desk chair, but <laughs> glad to be back with you guys and really excited to discuss this film because I loved it. Excellent. If you hear any kind of creaking noises through the podcast, just roll with it because it could get fun. John, <laughs> how are you doing this evening? I'm all right, yes. Yeah, still loving lockdown as much as everybody else. Looking forward to the fact that it's just over two weeks until we can actually venture out and get annoyed at people not watching films but looking at their, their phones instead. Ah, glory days. There was something released today as of June the 21st, I think it is, when things are supposed to be back to normal, normal. There's going to be no cap on the cinema and like theatres, but football fans will be in stadiums. And you can set yourself if there's more people going, but it's outside, a cinema inside. You'd think they would maybe try and restrict numbers there if anywhere. But hey, mm-hmm. well, I'm cool with restricting numbers for the cinema, to be honest with you. It's never been a problem for me because I go and watch my films at, Park, at Parkhead. So the, it's never the busiest of cinemas at the best of times. Although I suspect it will be for a wee while yeah. until things calm down again. Sometimes you go to see like Avengers, the, the floors are about seven people there, and you're like, wow. Excellent. <laughs> That's And two of them are me and John. <laughs> the latest episode, we're going to review the American action thriller, Nobody. There's a long dormant piece of me that so very badly wants out. What are you still doing here, old man? I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> <laughs> been a hell of a day you can see that this is a fellow when i first seen trailers for i was like i don't know about this bob odenkirk as an action star it's intriguing me the trailer's not selling it to me but i'll give it a chance for those who haven't heard of it because it's not been getting a lot of press this side of the pond uh, recently it was released in america at the end of march and i think we're getting over here in june so hopefully a cinematic release that will just go straight to on demand but it follows Bob Odenkirk as an everyday family man called Hutch Mansell. And then one night, uh, home invaders break into his house. He has a chance to attack one of them with a golf club as they're assaulting his son. He doesn't and instead lets them go without a scratch on him. And you think to yourself, this guy's a bit of a coward. You know, he's just a, he's a dad. He's a suburban dad. He's not the kind of guy you're expecting to kind of take on home intruders and stuff. He's... Yeah, he's, he's quite pathetic in a way. But then when he's getting the bus home one night, he sees a young woman who's been sexually harassed by a group of just, for lack of a better term, arseholes, drunken arseholes. And he decides, do you know, I'm not going to let this slide. And goes full on John Wick on their ass. And you'll be hard pressed to see a better fight scene in a film this year. It's just absolutely incredible. And from then on, you're kind of like, okay, this guy could fight what's going on here and I won't say anything more I'm not really too sure how much of the plot is like common knowledge in terms of like press releases and that so the less you know about it the better because it is it's a fun ride and 
yeah, like I said, I was skeptical of this film at first. I thought I gave it a go again, another cast against type action hero type thing, but this is an absolute blast. This film is so much fun. It's only 90 minutes long. The action scenes are incredible. And yeah, Bob Odenkirk does seem cast against type, but he is convincing as a total badass. Uh, I'll go to you first, John. What do you think of the movie? Pretty much the same as you. I loved it. I had a wee bit more insight into it in the run-up to it because there were videos kicking about of Bob Odenkirk training for it and he was pretty full on and it was really really impressive the, the stuff he was doing and the sort of pain he was putting himself through and you could tell he was totally totally committed to it and you're thinking this is pr- going to be something quite quite interesting because you don't think of him as that kind of star he's, he's obviously got a very wide range from dramatic through to comedy but action is another thing entirely so whether he can pull it off but seeing those videos I was thinking yeah he's, he's probably right up there and then you've got the the John Wick connection as you mentioned it's like a John Wick film but there is very much those connections to the whole John Wick oeuvre if not the John Wick universe although there possibly could be we don't know nothing's really been said about that yet so that, that's a possibility but yes love the film like you say it was 90 minutes long it didn't drag at all there's some really good introductions at the start the way he was introduced as being the sort of everyman and they had the the montage of monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday and it was just like these quick cuts of him doing exactly the same thing pouring the coffee uh, the car peeping at him when he was going into his work and all this sort of stuff and every day was the same and he just had this blank expression he just got on with it and everything so it really set up very nicely and like you say he's a just a dad kind of a character something there uh, the, the sort of schlobby side of it i could relate to that <laughs> rather than the action side of it. <laughs> i was kind of going yeah this is this is quite interesting you know <laughs> middle-aged man and all that and then he starts the uh, like kicking five bells out of people and you're thinking okay well that's not quite me that's all right then <laughs> but yeah loved it really did and you mentioned the the potential john wick connections there it is written by Derek colstad who created the john wick franchise and even the action care scenes and that are similarities, but yes, it's just fun to kind of play with that kind of idea. Mary, this seems like the kind of film that brought up your street, am I correct? <laughs> 100%. I was really sceptical going in because all I had seen was the poster, where obviously it's Bob Odenkirk's face, it looks quite bruised, and there's like loads of fists coming at him, and I was like, this is either going to be so bad that I'm going to laugh at it, or it's just going to be like a kind of sad taken rehash, like that's what I had in my head. And as John mentioned, it sets his character up really nicely. It's this kind of like lather, rinse, repeat thing of you see him typing in, you know, in the spreadsheet. He's just a kind of like spreadsheet monkey. And then he misses the bins every week. And he's just standing there in his sad jammies and white socks, just being like, hey, take my bins. His son just looks at him with like total disgust because he is just seen as this kind of weedy accountant. And by comparison, he has family members who as far as the son's concerned, are sort of cooler and harder and more sort of badass. And he just, he looks deflated. Like for the first like introduction to him as a character, he just, it's all in the eyes. He just looks so miserable with his life. And then as you see, there's a, just prior to when he gets on the bus, there's a a scene in a a tattoo parlour. And just all of a sudden, this little tiny reveal of his cuff, everyone shits themselves. So straight away, I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And that's followed by the scene on the night bus. And it just I felt like that whole sequence just turned the film on its head. And honestly, 
I have needed a Bob Odenkirk in my life on many a night bus on the way home. That was one of the best action sequences I think I've ever seen. Like I was actually like, hit him in the trachea, take that pipe. I was having the best time. Like it was, and it was so unexpected. And I hadn't seen any of those videos that you had mentioned, John, about him training. So again, I was kind of like, mm, how is this like 50 something year old guy going to fail in all this? But it's so credible and so believable. And yeah, oh, I just loved it. It was just crazy. I could have honestly gone another 90 minutes as soon as it finished. I, I just loved it. And you mentioned quite a good word there that I liked was uh, credible. And you think of this scene, it's not, it's not like a parody of an action film. It's not over the top in the sense that he just turns into this kind of martial arts expert. It gets a good kick in as well. There's something oh, yeah. really believable about the fight scene. And the guy's like kind of stabbing him and beating him, and he just keeps getting back up. And it's like, there's one particular scene that we've got too much spoiler territory, but you think the fight's over, and all the guys are kind of sitting in the bus, and he just gets back up like for round two. And they'll kind of look at him and say, Really? <laughs> and you think, What can they about this? This is a long fight scene as well. It, and mm-hmm. when I say it drags, I don't mean it drags in the sense it's a bad thing, I mean in the sense you're like, Right, this should be done by now. This should have finished by now, but it just keeps going and going and going. You're like, I don't know if I can watch it anymore. This is so brutal. What are they going to do? But it just, it really makes the film in many ways. And you mentioned that scene, the tattoo parlor as well, Mary, and you're like, this is interesting. And you see the kind of different flash and Bob Odenkirk's eyes as he's betraying more of a kind of a menacing figure. The film just completely, and I say this again in a good way, goes off the rails from that bus scene and turns into something completely different. I did not have an idea it was going to happen. It's absolutely mental. I was all in for it. I really like that scene in the tattoo parlour because it's the old guy who notices the the seven and two Mm -hmm. on his, his wrist. And then he goes, oh, thank you for your service. And he walks out and he closes the door. And there's about seven or eight locks on the door. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all just standing there. And, and it's all this click and whir and all this sort of stuff. It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, man. It's also quite interesting to be, I wouldn't say cameo as such, but kind of supporting cameo still role by Christopher Lloyd, who plays his old dad, who's in a, a nursing home. Again, I don't want to go into too much spoiler territory for this, but how much fun was it seeing Christopher Lloyd in this film? It was really good, wasn't it? Yeah, it really it was, was the best. It was like, I mean, again, it was kind of alluded to that as a young guy, he was probably cooler than his son, at least what you think at the start of the film. But Christopher Lloyd's facial expressions, like it's like his face is made of rubber and you can tell that he's having a good time for a lot of this as well. And I was just like, oh my God, I've so missed you in films. And again, not necessarily a genre I'd associate with him because I always think of obviously like your 80s movies or like your your Who Framed Roger Rabbit and obviously A Back to the Future and stuff like that and so I think of these kind of like rubberized almost cartoonish characters but again he was doing something a little bit different here and yeah obviously having the time of his life. Yeah it's a great cast this film as well you've got uh, the RZA, Colin Nielsen, Michael Ironside is even in this as well but the, the big bad guy and I'm going to pop picture his name because it's Russian is Alexei Zerabarikov. Probably don't know how you pronounce it, so I do apologise, Mr. Alexei. <laughs> so if you're, if you're listening to this, I do apologise. My Russian is not great. But he plays a Russian mobster, and I think it's okay for him to tick all the stereotypical boxes when the director himself is Russian. Yeah, but He almost wasn't a stereotype in the sense that, like, I've not seen too many movies where 
like really, you know, nefarious Russian mobsters are like in gold lamé suits doing karaoke. Like there was a little bit of piss taken there as well, which I quite liked. Well, it's funny enough, actually, I've, I think you mentioned this in the last pod, I was talking about the film Nightwatch. I wouldn't think he would be out of place in an actual Russian film. I think he looks more out of place in an American or a Western film showing Russian gangsters and what they think a Russian gangster is. But he mm-hmm. seems to fit more that kind of quirkiness that you'd expect from a kind of Russian sense of humour. Now, your heroes won't be really as good as your villain a lot of the times. And I thought this guy was really good. As you say, he's sitting at the same karaoke one minute. He's ripping somebody's face off the next with a glass. Terrifying and really kind of alluring. Um, John, what was your thoughts on him? Uh, Mary Ellen did to the karaoke, so what was your thoughts on that? I know she loves that kind of thing. Yeah, I th- it was a very good introduction to him because it introduced him out on the street in the club and the music was all playing and it followed him all the way through, taking off his big coat and sort of glad-handing people and all that and then worked his way through to the stage and he got right up on stage and started dancing right in time with the music. It was just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and like you say, after that, it got a wee bit darker because they get a wee bit uh, pissed off at somebody. But yeah, it's, it's, that's what you want. You want this. You want a menacing character. You want a larger than life sort of character. And because you've got somebody like that there, then it's a wee bit unpredictable about how things are going to go. It's not your standard just bad guy who's doing it for you know because he's a bad guy. This this guy actually had a bit of a story about him you know he, he was ruthless and everything but he didn't like what he was doing anymore so he kind of was he was a wee bit oh you know maybe he wants out and all this but he only wanted out on his sort of terms and that was never going to happen in this film <laughs> you, you that wasn't going to be the ending to it but yeah he, he came across as a really over the top russian bad guy and like you say yeah you can only get away with that if you've got a russian director at the helm really you, it would be problematic if it was an american director doing that it would just be the usual or oh, russian stereotypes but yeah and very well yeah that's the thing we see a lot of the john wick films isn't it and you've got um oh christ what's his name now oh god that's gonna annoy me it's in constantine they put the devil in armageddon it's been loads he plays the russian villain in john wick 2 i think it is peter stormier yeah, he's Swedish, you know, so close enough yeah. for him, for, for, for America, for Hollywood. I was going to say, he's yeah, West okay. of Britain, which is all the same to, or rather, yeah, East of Britain, which is all the same to uh, America. Can you play a, can you play a Russian gangster? Well, I'm Swedish, so. Yeah. Uh, what do you call him? It's like <laughs> Vincent Cassell in uh, Eastern Promises as well. Like, he's French, <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah, no, I like the unpredictable, I think John hit the nail on the head, unpredictable. So this guy's like doing karaoke. And the thing is, you feel like everyone feels like they need to clap because if they don't, like only a few scenes later, he was literally beating the shit out of a hospitalised person with a chair. So <laughs> like the guy's on his, be- on his deathbed and he's beating the shit out of him with like a swirly chair. And I just think, yeah, you probably, if you're in that club, you're just like, oh yeah, give him like applause because if you don't, I'll take you out. But also it was quite good. It wasn't entertaining. You probably would just naturally clap because most people probably know him as, hey, there's that karaoke singer again. It's like the, the bay horse, you know, and you just kind of get to know the certain singers. <laughs> we have mentioned a, a couple of those John Wick there. There is there's comparisons, even tonally and stylistically with the film. And I didn't look this up, to be fair, so I could be wrong either way, but I don't. I think it's only rumoured that there's a connection between the films. 
I kind of hope that they don't have a crossover or anything. I kind of like the idea of it being separate. I don't know about yours. Yeah, it works in its own merits. It doesn't need to cross over in any way. Stylistically, yes, it's very similar, but there's no need for it to be part of a shared universe or anything like that. I very much doubt it is. Although I, these things can be engineered. Yeah, I kind of thought, to be honest with you, because, as I say, I had loads of fun watches, part of me hoped that also there wouldn't be like a nobody too or whatever, because... <laughs> That was my big fear because I actually watched it. I was like, oh, this is so much fun. And you can see that if it does get released at cinema, it probably will make a lot of money. And I just think that it's like we don't need an extended nobody universe. Like we get that, like let's just leave the character the way it is and let's just leave things the way they are. But I kind of felt that, not saying the ending was particularly open, but I feel like there's like there's room there to either, as you say, do some sort of crossover or to just expand on this particular concept and I and I really just hope we don't actually because this was just fun. I agree. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking the same thing regarding the sequel. This is a film that just I think will work a lot better. I could be wrong. They can make a nobody too and it works. I do enjoy the John Wick sequels again that comparison again but to me mm-hmm. I preferred the first film that was quite contained. The more the more elaborate the world got I'm like right it's, <laughs> it's getting a bit ludicrous in a way that I'm kind of losing grip of this character who I quite enjoyed being this like mythical boogeyman killing gangsters because he killed his dog and now I'm kind of like right kind of taking on the world and there's this whole elaborate convoluted story put in there I don't want to see that happen with nobody I kind of like the idea of it being contained yeah. I don't need to know more about his past I don't need to know more about his kind of shadow network of assassins or villains or Russian gangsters just just leave, just leave it but it is kind of set up in a similar way because the the thing that triggers him is the, the kitty cat bracelet <laughs> which <laughs> makes him really want to do something because it's his daughter's favourite bracelet and it's it, obviously it's not the same level as uh, they killed a dog but it's it's, it's kind of up there you know in sort of stupid plot devices in order to get a bit of action. It yeah. does also have I mean we've mentioned John Wick a few times there but it does also have um, references to take no references to taken, similarities to taken, uh, especially with the age I don't know it's not that John that Keanu Reeves is a young guy but you don't associate Keanu Reeves as being like a middle-aged dad type character because he's still he's still Keanu Reeves. I mean, he's known for action films and I think you know how Keanu Reeves in his fifties now. He doesn't look it, really. He's still he's still thinking Keanu Reeves is a guy that could fuck you up if he wanted to. I mean he's he's the one, he's Neil. But he didn't get it for Leslie Nielsen and Taken because he wasn't known for his action films and stuff. And Bob Lincoln Cut's definitely not known for his action films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently nobody came from the same studio as John Wick were both made by Lionsgate, so there is a possibility that at some point, if they run out of ideas, then they could probably do something together. So I mean, surely the sequel has to be called Somebody, because... <laughs> no, I had an idea about that, actually, because I've got the theme tune and everything already sorted for it. It's going to be Son is going to be involved in the next one. It's going to be called Nobody's Child. So there ah. we go. Oh, very good. I mean, honestly, why are Hollywood not just snapping us up? I know, I know. They've got to call the third film anybody. <laughs> <laughs> or have the infamous uh, Urbali crossover. We need to joke there, please. But um, just reading here, Derek Colstad actually did mention about a potential crossover with the John Wick franchise, but it does say it'd be more of an Easter egg type thing. But that I don't mind. That yeah. I think I, that, that could be quite clever. I could be quite clever about like John Wick 4 or something and you just kind of like as a reference to him. Like, it's a weird teeny thing. I think that could be fun. 
Kitty Cat bracelet. That's what I would go yeah. for. Have that somewhere, yeah. yeah. Aye. But you don't want to see the characters cross over. And yeah, both films are a lot of fun. But nobody, I, I don't want to see Bob Odenkirk and John Wick fight. <laughs> Just, just no, and and also just like I don't, I feel like everything's. But I feel like there's going to just be like this one massive conglomerate of like films. Like I feel like they're trying to do like crossovers and links and references with everything these days. And it's like, why can't this just be like a wee ninety minutes of fun? I know, and here's the thing I really find bizarre: it's you get films. Also, Marvel did it. Lots of different people have tried it since, with varying results of success. Uh, like Universal. Um, try to do oh, their the monster universe. Yeah. I don't think anybody will agree that, and they kind of forced it. But we get we also the Conjuring universe as well. I'm like, no, you don't. You have the Conjuring and spin-off movies. It's not really the same to me. No. That's not that's not a shared universe to me. That's just <laughs> that's under the same umbrella to begin with. Yeah, and it's also just like again, it's like because these and this is what gives me the fear because I think nobody will make money. And it's like because these things make money. It's like all oh, the people want to see everything, and that's how you do have movies like. Annabelle and La Llorona and stuff like that as well because the actual films themselves made money and I just I really enjoyed this and I thought as a piece of like standalone cinema and I've just seen a different side to, to Bob Odenkirk like let's just leave it at that because it was just good fun. Yeah like they should have done with Taken let's be honest. Oh a hundred percent they got progressively <laughs> worse as they went along didn't they? Taken 3 I just remembered being actual garbage and like there got to a stage where you could literally see it wasn't Liam Neeson doing the stunts anymore because like, he just looked fucking knackered. There's also that scene, I think it's like Taken 2 or Taken 3, where there's like seven cuts as he climbs a fence. Yeah, that's the one I mean. Yeah, yeah that's, that's like, what? I don't get it. But yeah, obviously Hollywood's not going to listen to us. And if this movie makes the money we think it will, it's probably going to get a sequel. However, not every film that smashes the box office automatically gets a sequel. Sometimes the creative powers that be involved kind of dig their heels in. Like Joker, for example, mm-hmm. over a billion dollars. And you think that's an instant green light, a green light sequel right there. But all involved are kind of like, yeah, if it's a story, we'll do it, but we're not going to rush it. And I was like, cool. And that's what you can really ask on these things because some sequels get fast-tracked and rushed out. Some get handled more with care. Both instances are true in the Fast and Furious franchise which I think is quite interesting <laughs> but <laughs> we'll see what happens in the future of nobody but for the time being this movie is going to be released in June and I can't recommend that enough really I think it's just so much fun again don't go into too much detail about it because the less you know about it the better I can't see many people who are into this kind of thing being disappointed by it John do you recommend from you? Oh absolutely it was a fantastic film right from the, the word go when you get the cold opening of him sitting with the handcuffs on and the, the various things that he starts producing out of his jacket. Uh, just brilliant. It really hooks you right away. And from there, he's going, yeah, I'm going to love this film. And I wasn't disappointed in any way by it. Maybe. Oh, absolutely. You know me, I'm a, I'm a sucker for just like absolute carnage when it comes to to violence. And yeah, just as I say, getting to see another side to to Bob Odenkirk and getting to see some Christopher Lloyd again, I, I couldn't recommend it enough. Excellent. Well, as you can probably tell from our thoughts on this movie, that yeah, you just need to go and see it. Or, but hopefully, you get to go and see it, and it's it's a uh, it's a good popcorn movie. It's a good kind of like Friday night, Saturday night, even date style movie, depending yeah. on your date to the fair. Uh, <laughs> 
And for anybody out there who may be a bit of a, an asshole in real life, it might make you think twice before harassing some poor woman on the night bus going home because you yes. just don't know who <laughs> you're messing with. So that takes us nicely on to our topic for this evening, which is actors that are cast against type. Now, I'm a, I'm a big Bob Odenkirk fan from Better Call Saul, and like I mentioned earlier on the podcast, I was a bit kind of like, yeah, I mean, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of giving actors a chance. But sometimes it just doesn't work. And I was thinking Adrian Brody was in Predators. I really like Adrian Brody. And he got jacked for that movie. And I thought it was it was fine in it. But he just kept looking at it going, you're not an action star. And he even had an interview one time, the guy said this you cast against type event. I'm an actor. I'll I'll do different things. I'm I like to try and experiment. And I knew where he was coming from. Again, I think he's looking at that film. I think it's very underrated, but it was still quite hard to take him serious as an acting action hero because you're just not used to him in that role. It was fine. But we did pick a top three actors who we think are our best examples of being cast against type. And sorry, Adrian, you haven't been the list on this occasion. But <laughs> I shall go first, I believe, is the order. And I've went with one that isn't necessarily a secret anymore. But it still can be quite surprising for people considering how infamous this actor is known for his screwball parody comedy movies. I've went with Leslie Nielsen uh, in the movie Airplane. Now, Wesley Nielsen was acting by this point for a good 30 years. He's not a young man by the time Airplane comes along. And this is the first time he played a comedic role to this extent. Now, it's funny to think about that because he went on for the rest of his career to be known as the Naked Gun in Police Squad, any popular movie like, like True Lies with Spy Hard, uh, Dracula film, Dracula Dead Loving. He was known for these really straight-to-video style, just stupid comedies. Throughout his career, there's always had some big success when he could get in that, but more cinematic releases. It's hard to fight, it's crazy to think that before Airplane, he was actually known as a more kind of quote unquote serious actor. And that was the reason he was cast in Airplane. They wanted somebody who would act like they didn't get the joke. They wanted somebody with a deadpan delivery who was cast against type because they thought that would be funny. And they couldn't be more right. He is absolutely amazing in this film. Up until his first introduction in the film, they got up to him and say, are you a doctor? And he's sitting with a stethoscope on. <laughs> like, not around his neck, but I think it's actually in his ears. He's just looking like, yes. <laughs> and there's also the, the infamous lines of, uh, surely you can't be serious. You know, <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm serious, don't call me Shirley. It's just such a quotable film and carries that on for the rest of his career in films like but The Naked Gun. And like, one of my favourite lines from that is when it says, when I see five weirdos in the park dressed in togas murder a man, I'm going to take some action. And the last, <laughs> that was a play of Julius Caesar, you moron, you killed five actors. Good ones. <laughs> Good ones. His delivery is so, so good. And you, you get that. For, I don't know, it's just because he's so cast against type. You get comedic actors that are known for deadpan, Jason Bateman, for example. But he's just so serious in all these roles. And one of, the, one of my favourite lines as well is like, uh, any last requests? Yes. Can I have the gun? <laughs> you can't even do these with a straight face. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's an airplane and it just changed his career completely. Uh, like I said, he spent, he spent the first half of his career more kind of serious roles. I think his most famous role before Airplane was Forbidden Planet. Yeah, it was. Is that correct? Yeah. And then from Airplane onwards, like I said, he's not a young man by this role. It's just automatic. It just changes him. I assume both of you have seen Airplane. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It's a Hammer family staple. Like, I honestly thought my dad was hilarious growing up and then 
I watched Airplane and I was like, oh, you're taking all your part from here. Like, none of it's original material. Yeah. I also love the scene where it's the uh, women playing the guitar and she knocks the girl's life support out as well. <laughs> She's, like, choking and, like, everyone's, like, clapping and singing and stuff like that. Yeah, no, it's, it's an absolutely hysterical movie. I love it. And that's the thing with the film as well. I mean, it's, it's not like uh, Leslie Nielsen was an unknown actor kind of plucked from obscurity. It was really well known. And, I mean, this film was 1980, I think. Uh, it was a bit before my time. But I wonder what it must be like at the time for audiences going, Leslie Nielsen's in this film? Really? And, yeah, I mean, absolute perfect casting for a guy who was cast against type. It's it's incredible. Who's up next? I'm looking at my list, but it's refreshing. I've lost it. That would have been Mary. Me. Yeah. Okay, so my first pick, um, my darling fiancé will be delighted to know, is Tom Cruise in the 2004 movie Collateral. I think I picked this. I was torn between this and Magnolia. But I picked this because he's sort of it's one of the sort of rare films where Tom Cruise actually physically changes his appearance. So he obviously has got the grey wig on in this. And he is playing this contract killer, Ed Vincent, who goes around by taxi cab at night, basically finishing off whatever job he has to do. I really like this because I think Tom Cruise is an excellent villain and he doesn't do it enough. Like this film kind of goes against his whole image of being a sort of like pretty boy, a young pinup, and also being a sort of all-American good guy or hero and yes there is action sequences and yes there are stunts and shootouts the one in the nightclub being my favourite where he's literally on the ground shooting through his legs and someone else's but I like the fact that you're not supposed to root for him in this film but he's very convincing and very charismatic and I feel like this is going to sound stupid but seeing every Tom Cruise film I feel like Tom Cruise is being Tom Cruise, like I feel there's like a performative element of being Tom Cruise, whereas in this film, he, he could be anyone and I think yeah. that's the point, like I know that when he was sort of, not in rehearsal for this movie, but he actually went around as a delivery driver, just to see if he could blend in and sort of weave in and out people and have no one notice him which I think he did fairly successfully and I think that's why I really like this role, is because he could be anyone and I think this is the first time I've ever seen sort of to a certain extent him actually lose himself in a role it's a really good movie. I love the way this movie's shot as well. And I, it's so tense in so many different places. The scene in the jazz club in particular, when he's sort of giving the guy like the last few moments of his life is incredibly tense. And I just think that, yeah, he just he's a really convincing bad guy and he should do it more often because as much as like Mission Impossible and stuff is fun, this is him, I think, really sort of flexing his acting chops to use a cliche. And, and he's so good in it. And I take it you guys have both seen it because you're nodding oh, oh, away. Yeah. And I think Tom Cruise. I, I was going to have Tom Cruise on my list, and I was like, well, "What film do I pick?" Because if he's cast against type so often, then you think to yourself, "If he's cast against type so often, is he really typecast?" And I would still argue yes, because when he is cast against type, it's a role you've never seen him in before. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you, you still you still think of Tom Cruise as that fresh faced action hero star. Doesn't matter how many against type roles he does. You still think of him as like Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. Ethan Hunt, um, or like is it Minority Report or whatever. You, you still from what you still, you still oh, Ethan Hunt. I would say more than anything, he's been doing that for almost twenty five years now. Mm-hmm. If not twenty five years, like Night Six was the first movie. He's always going to be known as that, which is quite interesting feel because Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise was a massive actor before that, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I would still I would still argue the case that yeah, you, you, you can still cast him against type. Because he only ever does these roles once and then never again. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and yeah, he's a, I think he's a great actor. I don't think he gets enough credit. Uh, I think he's about samey. And then John obviously put the, <laughs> said that Rich Hall thing earlier, and it's like, yeah. oh, he's a recent car driver who forgets. Like I do feel like a lot of the his early work, he was just playing the sort of same sort of cocky little shit who knew he was good looking type of thing. And obviously, he spent the past, you know. 25 years doing these action type roles which I think you know obviously because they're within recent memory have what he's become sort of more known for but I I really rate him as a villain as I say I was torn between this and Magnolia and I think it's, it's because I didn't feel like I was getting a Tom Cruise performance yeah and I think that's the thing as well so I say I think I will get that because I can think of like at least five films off the top of my head but I think he's really good in this and I kind of keep making excuses of, well, it must be the script or the director supporting that to that. Tom Cruise is just a very good actor. It just tends to do more Tom Cruise movies, if that makes sense. Yeah. He's spent his whole career working with the sort of top people. It was Michael Mann, wasn't it, in Collateral? Yeah. And yeah. if you look at the directors and the writers he's worked with, he's always chosen people who are going to produce sort of top grade stuff for him. Now, some of it may be samey, but a lot of it is quite different. Like you're talking about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, for instance, and Magnolia as well. You know, that's not somebody who's just quite happy to do the same old thing all the time. So, yeah. you look obviously even Ellen back in his career, born the fourth of July, the mm-hmm. Oliver Stone. I think it was directed that, wasn't it? That's uh, right, yes. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's incredible. You can think of all these films, but it's a big departure from. But he's still typecast. Mm-hmm. It's that's again. I suppose he's also been around forever. <laughs> sort of sad. And According to his religion, he's going to live for yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why he doesn't like being a bad guy in the movies so much, because he's regarded as a bad guy in real life so much by so many people. Well, there's that rumour as well that apparently Christian Bale based American Psycho on Tom Cruise. Oh, wow. You heard that? That's the best news I've no. ever heard. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know how true it is, but apparently based um, his portrayal of Patrick Bateman on Tom Cruise, this overly nice and fake kind of friendliness that's convincing but there's something dark behind the eyes and that fucking is tom cruise because when he's on I chat would... shows and stuff like that he can he's so like he's too nice like there's no and then you hear the odd bits of like you know him losing his shit a crew member or you're not allowed to look at him when he's in a hotel or something like that and i'm just like there's darkness in there there is i would just like to add a disclaimer to the scientologists and say well, I'm on a list John, before we get sued, uh, push your pick. Well, it's already been mentioned slightly. It's actually Liam Neeson in Taken. Obviously, Big Liam was pretty much known for his turns in more sort of serious, dramatic roles early in his career. He was in the likes of The Bounty and The Mission and Schindler's List, and then obviously Rob Roy. <laughs> playing an Irish Scotsman rather than an Australian Scotsman and Michael Collins and stuff like that. Obviously, he went on and he did a bit more sort of popcorn-style stuff with the first Star Wars film, Phantom Menace. But it was Taken that kind of basically changed his career. I mean, you're talking about a guy in his mid-50s and he takes on this probably now iconic action role it was a film that wasn't really expected to do very much. It was done quite cheaply. It came from Luke Besson from his studios, and it was just one of these run-of-the-mill action films. 
and Neeson stars as Brian Mills, whose daughter gets abducted while she is on a European tour following U2 around the, con uh, the continent, which is a bizarre reason for going to Europe in the first place. <laughs> but, <laughs> and uh, he gets to say, you know, I've got a very particular set of skills and I'm going to come and get you and all that sort of stuff. And from there, it just follows him through to Europe and basically working his way through Albanians. There's no mercy shown for the Albanians in this film. A bit like nobody, it doesn't hang about. The first 15, 20 minutes are set up. There's a, a slight demonstration of him actually being able to use these particular set of skills in a bodyguard job. And then that's him, full, full on badass. And it, it's good. It's really well done. The first one especially. The second one, the third one are pretty atrocious. But the first one, he was still reasonably young enough that you could see they'd put in a bit of training on it and he was able to handle himself. The worst thing about him is the ch chestnut brown dye job that they gave him to make him look slightly younger. It just it's, it's too chestnutty. <laughs> There's not enough grey in there. So, But it's a very good performance from him and it works in the respect of it's a, a B-movie. It's one that's a sort of a throwaway film, but it was phenomenally successful and it fell into the trap of doing sequels. And they tried to up the ante with the sequels and he wasn't able to do that in the same way. Now, his career from then has been pretty much defined by these type of roles. He's been in a number of films that have been pretty much the same. He is slightly branching out now. He's doing... Like Cold Pursuit, for instance, that was a, a bit of a variation on it. That wasn't quite the same sort of thing, and he's taken on more dramatic roles again, but for about a decade there, that's all he was kind of known for. It was these type of roles. And Taken has got a lot to answer for because it opened the door for a lot of 50-something men thinking that they can be in action films. And for some... It was okay, but for others, it was certainly not a very good look at all. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I first seen the trailer for Taken, it was his daughter being kidnapped and him on the phone. And I remember up until the phone speech, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be Leslie Nielsen. Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see it. I want to see it. I was like, we won't see it. And let's be honest, to see if Leslie Nielsen lived a bit longer, there'd be a parody of that. But there might be already with him in the role. But it'd probably be awful, but still. But no, when I first seen the trailer, I thought first was going to be like Liam Neeson in some sort of like kidnap drama. You know, maybe in the vein of Ransom, possibly. Mm. I know Mel Gibson's like an action star and that, but I think maybe something in the vein of that. And he gives that phone speech, you're kind of like, oh, hello. Mm -hmm. oh, well, what? And I remember like telling people about this film, they're all saying, I'm missing that. I put it with my mate one night and we're watching it. It's like the first 10, 15 minutes and he's like, you can tell he's drifting because yeah. it's all quite sweetness and light and like there's a certain look of the movie that's all very like, like, a pop like a pop film almost, like a pop video. And then it just gets dark really quickly and then the action's incredible. And you're just like, wow, this film ultra-violent and awesome and really, really brutal in terms of some of the tones. Like there's a scene where He's always just trying to get his daughter, his daughter's pal, perhaps to her. Mm -hmm. and, kind of just, and then just kind of discarded for the plot. It's very kind of like, well, man, that's pretty harsh. But yeah, great film, terrible sequels. <laughs> agreed. Absolutely agreed. Yeah, I mean, I remember like Liam Neeson was like sort of the housewife's pinup when he was doing all that because he was doing like Catherine Cook's adaptations and stuff like that as well, like on TV. So he was kind of 
sort of your Irish mammy's favourite and then all of a sudden it was like oh he can kind of kick ass but as you say they update the stunts and all that in the sequel and he just was not physically able to to keep up and that's why part of me thinks they might rush a nobody sequel because let's be honest time is not necessarily on Bob Odenkirk's side he's only going to get older so yeah but I'm mm. thinking the same thing with Better Call Saul and it's I suppose by a prequel <laughs> to Breaking Bad <laughs> and we're almost 10 years after Breaking Bad finished yeah, I think there's a, a bit of a difference the way they approach these type of films now in terms of preparing for them so the the work that Bob Odenkirk put into that I can see him being able to sustain that for a good wee while yet. Whereas Liam Neeson didn't have the same sort. Aye, Liam Neeson didn't have the same sort of preparation. You could tell that he wasn't. He didn't bulk up in any way. Because when you you looked at Bob Odenkirk, they, they tried to make him be as dowdy as possible. He was wearing like polo shorts and quite loose fitting clothes, but he was really skinny in it, and you could see that he was really skinny in it because he'd put in so much work, and you could actually mm-hmm. see there was a wee bit of bulk there. Whereas with Liam Neeson, as I said, the only thing that was going for him was his hair, and it wasn't even his. So it wasn't quite the same. There was there was more editing in the Taken film than there was oh, in yeah. the uh, Nobody film. There was a, uh, Nobody, there was a lot of, what do you, what do you call it? Is it mid-shots? Call it, so you're, you're seeing all the action. Yeah. You're able to follow it, and you can see that he's actually doing all the work, whereas... With the taking, there was a few ones where you were getting the back of them and all that sort of stuff, the usual sort of stuntman bit, so you're not seeing a face when things are actually happening. But yeah, aye, sequels were awful. <laughs> yeah, don't watch the sequels. So, Thomas, second choice? Yeah, for my second choice, I have went with Channing Tatum, and the standout for me in terms of being cast against type here is 21 Jump Street. Before this, Chan Tatum was known more for really rubbish romantic films, not even rom-coms, but just like your kind of like schmaltzy, dowdry romance, uh, which eh, maybe they were good, but it wasn't for me, or really bad action films, like G.I. Joe, which is kind of like more my kind of thing, to be fair. But I did like that film. So, I, mean, I was going to say, I thought uh, you like that. I did like it, but it's not a great film. It's not a great film. Even also a good cast, Sierra Miller's in it. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. If it's, it's a film that really should have been bigger than it was, I don't know what happened there. Uh, it's not a good movie. He's, he's, not, he's not really any kind of breakout roles. He was, you'd look at him and go, oh, Chanty, it was that film. You expect a kind of cardboard performance. He's a good-looking guy. He can dance a wee bit. He's not... Although, although... A wee bit? Going, a wee bit? Have dance. you seen Step Up to the Streets? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Magic Mike. So did that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, it was also in that film, like, uh, what was it called? Fighting. It was a kind of cage fighter. They all just looked like really kind of like, they were cinematic films and stuff, but everything looked like it went straight to video and you went to the bat an eyelid. It was very good and a guy to recognise in your saints, however. Uh, that's a very good and underrated movie. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. It's brilliant. He's very good in that, but he wasn't known for his kind of acting chops and certainly wasn't known for his, for his uh, comedic roles. So when Jump Street comes along, you've got him as kind of parody of the popular TV show. He's partnered up with Jonah Hill, who is known for more of his kind of comedy. And I think Chan Tatum steals the show. He's sort of like a, the straight man in many ways, but his comic timing is absolutely incredible. It just plays this really kind of like dumb jock type character who's a total fish out of water. And there's a scene where they go to the school for the first time, he's like, yeah, put your 
backpack with just one strap over because that's how the cool kids do it. Nobody's doing that. And then he's uh, if anybody steps up to you, you just kind of knock them out and he just like punches the kid right in the face. So bear in mind, he's supposed to be like a man, like an adult. And he just punches this teenage kid. And they're like, why would you punch me? And it's like, uh, they mentioned the, mention the kid's gay. And so I didn't know we were gay. You punched him because he was gay? So like, no, I didn't punch him because he was gay. <laughs> it's just like, the way he does it, it's just so deadpan and just so like, oh, I'm a big daft idiot. No, know what I'm doing, but he's trying to be cool. And it's this day's kind of like flipping the rules as well because he goes to the school and Jonah Hill's really popular to be a nerd. And high school is nothing like high school you get in these movies. And they also got some jokes as well about his looks and stuff like that. And the fact that <laughs> you look a bit fatty what you did in high school. Um, but I thought it was absolutely brilliant in this movie. And it really showed me a, a different side to him that I did not expect. I did not expect him to be so naturally funny. And always he's got a great skit to work off him, off of and a great cast, but he'd done it again in the sequel. And I think he's done some work in a comic comedic stuff as well since. That was like a dance sequence thing. So. It was a, yeah. uh, a Hail Caesar, did you say? Yeah. 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 Uh, Logan Logan Logan. Oh, yeah, of course he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of more deadpan, but yes, it's still, it's a bit more range to him as well in that mm-hmm. film. Yeah, it's good. That's a really good film. Yeah. I, I have the, the box set. I just, I, that's one of those films that I could watch over and over again and it will never not be funny. I love, I think it's isn't the first one that Channing Tatum says, I thought you said we got Kate Blanchett. And Ice Cube says, I said you had carte blanche. <laughs> 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 and that was one of the funniest lines I've ever heard. And again, just delivered like totally straight. So it's the impact is just, oh, it's, it's brilliant. And speaking of shared universities, because everything has to have it these days, there's talks of another sequel, 23 Jump Street, an all-female spin-off and a crossover with Men in Black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been getting talked about for a couple of years now. Because the, the last Men in Black film was supposed to be that crossover, but then it decided to go a, a different way and do the yeah, Men in Black International. Was it not terrible, though? It's, not, it's, it's awful. Yeah. It's I'm not a big Men in Black fan, I have to say. Like, the first one was good, and then I don't really remember any... If, if there has been any other ones, I just know that from the trailer of that one with Chris Hemsworth, it looked shit. There's four. There's um, wow. the first two with Will Smith and Tom Lee Jones, and then there was like, a big gap between the second and third one, mm-hmm. and it wasn't great. Josh Brolin plays a young Tom Lee Jones oh, very, very well. He's yeah. great in that, but it's not. It's, I can't. The film's not very memorable, and the last one was terrible. I wish they, again. It's one of these things. It's like know when to stop. Like surely there are other ideas available than just oh, do you want to reboot this? I okay. Mm. Like. Unfortunately not. So um, my next pick, I'm going to fuck up the title of this, I know I am. It's the 2019 Joe Berlinger film, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. And of course, I am talking about Zach Efron's performance in this. So uh, there was a lot of controversy surrounding his casting because up until then, he'd literally been like the pretty boy from High School Musical and Baywatch and Greatest Showman. And I actually think the casting in this is spot on. I think the film itself is okay. But again, I think he elevates it. He's actually pretty incredible. Like, obviously, there was chat of, you know, Bundy being this really charismatic and good-looking person, and I think he captures it. There's something in his eyes that, like, the whole way through the film, you kind of can't stop looking at what, at how he's looking at other people because he looks 
dangerous and he looks kind of feral and I felt like he really captured Bundy's physicality like even the way he stands with the kind of hunched shoulders and the arms across each other and obviously uh, hair and makeup and costume did a really good job there as well but I think he's brilliant in this role as I say he elevates the film because the film isn't great Uh, Berlinger's documentary that he brought out earlier on that year was actually better and again I'm just fascinated when somebody like that is given a chance to do something really different because he didn't have to do anything like that. He was quite, you know, he'd, he'd done the High School Musical, he'd done, say, Baywatch, Greatest Showman, he could probably retire, you know, off that alone. But he chose to do something that was quite different and really, really dark. And I think he's really, there's something about, as I say, it's the eyes, I keep going back to that. He just looked so, so dangerous and so, like, just, again, it's kind of similar to what I said about Tom Cruise. I didn't feel like I was watching Zac Efron. Like, he was really, really credible in this role. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it. I think, it was it a straight to Netflix thing? No, it was a Sky Sky Cinema original, but it was shown in the cinema um, briefly, I think think it was like an invite-only thing through Sky, like a Sky VIP Mm -hmm. uh, perk type thing. I did see it in the cinema, it was a showcase I went to, so if I was going to showcase to see it, it must have been a reason for Mm -hmm. it, like as opposed to cinema or that. Yes, that's an excellent choice, and I was excited about the casting because Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pretend I was always a Sky Heffron fan. But I was somebody who, in recent years, I was seeing things like, even like Bad Neighbours, for example, and go, this guy's got some range. And mm-hmm. this could be an interesting, this could be an interesting casting, especially for the fact that people are saying, oh, I won't be able to pull it off. It's like, well, he's a perfect role for like a Ted Bundy type thing. If you know anything about Ted Bundy, it makes mm-hmm. sense to have someone like Zac Efron. Oh, absolutely, because Bundy was like a celebrity of his day. And as I say, he was seen to be good looking, charming, all the rest of it. And I couldn't understand why people were like, oh my God, that's terrible. You can't cast Zac Efron in this, you know, this heinous role as this terrible guy. Actually, Bundy was, you know, considered something of a ladies' man. So it makes yeah. sense. I mean, there's a, there's a scene in the film. No pun intended. I always mean to go back and watch it because I don't know if I, I don't know if I've missed it because it's so subtle, but the scene when he's talking to I guess he's lawyer that in the prison and they talk about how it's gonna be like a it's gonna be a show trial, it's gonna be like cameras mm. and stuff. And mm. you just see this wee flicker of a smile. Oh yeah. It's very normal actually, the, the shot. Oh so subtle. Like, did he just smile there? Yeah. Because he's excited about the idea of being a star. Oh, it's it's creepy. It's creepy. Yeah. It's not the greatest film to be fair that for us, but there's a point overall, but he is really good in it. You can't yeah. take that away from him. You seen it, John, yeah. I have, yes, and I would agree with both of you. It wasn't a brilliant film, but it was a, a really effective performance. It's it's nice to see actors actually taking a bit of consideration and, you know, trying to stretch themselves. Yeah. They probably, that's the thing, we, we don't see enough of the different range that actors have because maybe only about 15 or 20% of the performances we actually get to see, whereas it, if it's television or movies, spend so much time in the theatre as well. So they, they experiment an awful lot more with those type of roles, but the majority of the, the general public don't get to see them doing that, which is obviously a bit of a shame. But yes, very good choice. Could you say something, Chanty? I'm quickly here before we go to your choice, John. Um, of course. It also was very good. It was also very good in Foxcatcher. And for the MTV Awards, it was nominated for Best Male Performance. It was also nominated for Best Shirtless Performance for Foxcatcher. And I'm like, did you guys watch the movie? <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? How is that even a fucking category? What the fuck? But they have Best Screen Kiss. Was in offer that as well? 
for Foxcatcher no? <sighs> no, that was a foul. <laughs> it was not ready for that. The fact that you answered that so quickly, please tell me you've got IMDb open and you're not, you don't just fucking yeah. know that. <laughs> I'm writing that biography on Gentium. <laughs> yeah. uh, He's yeah, got his awards tattooed and he's in her arm. Oh, What's your next choice, John? My second choice is Michael Keaton in the 1989 reboot of the Batman franchise. Now, up until that point in the late 80s, Michael Keaton was known primarily as more of a comedic actor. He was pretty much pigeonholed into these types of comedic, wacky roles. Even with the likes of Beetlejuice, which preceded Batman film, he, he was still regarded as a comedic performer. So when he was announced as being the face of the new franchise there wasn't the internet so there was actually a letter writing campaign set up by fans who wrote something like fifty thousand letters and sent them to warner brothers saying this is not our batman not even any hashtags back then just didn't exist hashtags obviously <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want him because of the fact that they only knew him from comedic roles he was too short he didn't have enough hair, bizarrely. I don't get that. He didn't have the right hair. He didn't have the, the right chin. And it, it was just, it, it wasn't a, an actor of substance. They'd been looking at all sorts of action stars of the time. We'd mentioned Mel Gibson and people like that. They'd all been considered. But Tim Burton went <laughs> with Michael Keaton. I know, can you imagine? Sorry, just the thought of a Mel Gibson Batman has literally just sent shivers. <laughs> yeah, it was bizarre, but the, the producer and Burton had seen something in his performances, not Justin Peter, just something like a wee bit darker, a wee bit edgier, and thought, let's go with him for this. And obviously, it worked out very well. It was a massive smash hit. A lot of it, obviously, to do with the rest of the cast, and it wasn't just him, obviously, a Jack Nicholson Joker role, but you needed a, a really good, solid performance as Batman. And it's a dual role as well, because obviously you've got the Playboy side, the Bruce Wayne side, and you've got the Batman side. And they are pretty much, on screen, they have to be two different types of characters. That was helped in this film because Michael Keaton is slightly claustrophobic. So when he was wearing the big rubber suit, he felt really enclosed and affected his mood and actually affected the way that he acted when he was uh, on screen because he hated it so much that it, it brought a certain amount of menace to uh, his actual performance as well. I mean, it's one of these, it's a, an early version of fans getting it completely wrong. We've seen it time and time again, like Daniel Craig. That's kind of exactly a James what Bond. I was thinking of, yeah. We kind of, if, can't have James Bond with blonde hair. And there yeah. was also, I was when I was doing a wee bit of research for it, there was all sorts of comments like in national newspapers saying, you know, what the hell are you doing here? You know, Michael Keaton can't play a serious role. And again, it's all got down to the fact that it's typecasting. They only recognise them for a certain type of role and they can't say, wait a minute, this guy's an actor. He acts for a living so if he can do a comedic role he can certainly do a dramatic role and he can do a dramatic role he can do an action role so it's i don't know it's just familiarity isn't it that's what it comes down to and the thing is i mean like um, obviously but Heath Ledger is a big example as well of the kind of the, one of the first examples of the massive online backlash uh, uh fuck it, look at that turned out 
But the Batman thing, I only found it about a few years ago, and that wasn't something I knew even at the time where he played just casting. And I've seen as usual, I've seen the posters and I've seen the, the letters, the comments and stuff. I went and watched Batman last year for the first time in years. I grew up watching the, that Batman. I didn't really know Michael Keaton from much, far from that in Beetlejuice, so it wasn't a big departure from what we see him in like two different roles. Mm-hmm. Even watching Batman back, it still does seem a bit weird because Michael Keaton is not an action star, but his Batman isn't Christian Bale's Batman, he's got his kind of martial arts moves. He's just like a pure badass Batman. It's like, I'm not going to do anything fancy. I'm just going to boot you in the chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of that was, a bell tower. The, I think there was limitations in the amount he could actually move in the suit. So there wasn't really the opportunity to do that. But he wasn't that type of actor anyway. Yeah. But it really made it because the way he moved was, was so menacing. And it stopped people. And there was something very theatrical about the way he kind of just the cape and stuff and it's something it's very comic book it's very comic book the whole film's presentation and as you say he's playing two different roles he's playing bruce wayne he's playing batman and he does both brilliantly yeah totally it kind of set it's, him up for the rest of his career so he could basically do whatever he wanted after that so it's it's no bad thing when the going against type works out for an actor or an actress it really does yeah talk about a guy as a great villain as well mm, yeah so Batman, of him when it, yeah i haven't seen like there was um, two gifts to the world in 1989, Michael Keaton's Batman and myself. <laughs> I haven't seen this in years, but I remember, I think I first watched it maybe when I was about, I think my dad had it on video, I think it was about seven or eight, and I remember being bloody terrified of Jack Nicholson. Like that whole like overly, you know, sort of Commedia dell'arte type mouth really, really scared the shit out of me when I was wee. But again, I was small and I hadn't seen Michael Keaton and anything else apart from Beetlejuice, as you said, Simi. So to me, I was just like, oh, this guy is Batman. There was kind of no questions asked, certainly not on my part. And I haven't seen it in such a long time, but it's maybe want to go back and watch it, actually. Go back and watch it. I would say as though it's it's quite dated in terms of the sets and costume design and that, but I think it's, I don't think it harms the movie because it looks like a comic book. It yeah. doesn't look I mean, real. It does, people, it it look, people don't dress like the, that. <laughs> can't be as bad as the George Clooney one, so it's fine. Fucking hell, no. I actually saw this film in the cinema the day it opened. I I was at a midnight screening for it at the Kelvin Cinema in Paisley. And everybody cheered when the Batmobile came on screen. (laughs) It was quite something. It's quite good. That's pretty cool. I mean, for me, when I was younger, I was watching like uh, Adam West Batman, like early mornings and stuff. So for for me, that's who Batman was. That's who was Batman Robin. And like, when I first seen Tim Burton's Batman, I was was too young to be watching it, but I didn't get it as well because it was too dark and it wasn't Mm -hmm. the Batman I knew of. That was a problem that a lot of fans had at the time because they thought they were going to try and do another comedic Batman film with them jumping about and all the kapows and all that. So one of the reasons why the costume is rubberized and very dark is to get away from them wearing tights and things like that. So <laughs> it was a completely different type of Batman. It was a more serious take on the role, if you like. And it kind of set the scene for, you know, going ahead with how Batman really looked from there on, you know, apart from the nipples, obviously, you know, that didn't last very long. Bat nipples. <laughs> <laughs> we should get those trending on Twitter again. Like... Bring back. <laughs> Bring back the bad nipples. Restore the nipples. Restore the bad nipples. Hashtag. <laughs> so, Thomas, your last choice? My last choice is I went with Emily Blunt, and the movie I picked for is Edge of Tomorrow because up until this point, I have never seen an action role such as this. Um, 
you think of Emily Blunt before then and I always think of films like the Jane Austen Book Club, Devil Wears Prada. I, 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 even though it's not all period pieces, I imagine like in period pieces just has that English thespian type. I'm trying to think of an aura about her. I did not expect to see her starring alongside Tom Cruise in this sci-fi epic action movie, but she was awesome in it. She was utterly, utterly badass. And not long after this film came out, there was rumours of a remake of Escape from New York, where she was going to play Snake Plissken, and I thought, yeah, I can see it. That's actually an excellent choice, and it was completely based off Edge of Tomorrow, which I hadn't seen a great deal of movies before this. It wasn't the kind of movies I would go and see. I thought that uh, Adjustment Bureau was terrible. Oh, Looper yeah, was good. What about that? Oh, it's awful. She's really good in Looper, although she's not in it much. Um, since then, I've seen loads of things, and again, she's never went back to that kind of action role, though even Sicario isn't it's not a big budget action role. It's a very different kind of movie. She's one of my favourite actresses or actors, to be more PC. Uh, I think she's absolutely excellent. I can't wait for A Quiet Place too. It's going to be so good. But this was a movie that really kind of caught my attention with her. And I thought, she could be an action star if she wanted to. She's really that good. And she more held her own with Tom Cruise. I think she overshadowed him in the movie. Yeah, it was a better performance, I think, than... Yeah, well, <laughs> there was the height difference, obviously, as well. Yeah, like you say. But yeah... Definitely, she was fantastic in that film, and it was a, a bit of a surprise. It was a, a real departure. It's a good pick, actually, is against type because, as you say, she was regarded as a sort of English rose type Passive, yeah. actor. Yeah. So many things, like you say, it wasn't just period stuff, but even like uh, Devil Wears Prada, she was a very particular type of character in it. Mm-hmm. And you would recognise, you would say, oh, that's that one. She, you could list maybe three or four different films that she was in, and it'd be pretty similar, the type of character that she played. But yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to A Quiet Place Part 2 as well. I think that's going to be great. Yeah. Me too. And in this, she was like really ripped as well. Like, it, like we're talking about like people kind of changing their physicality. Yeah. Like, there's the scene where she's doing like the press ups, whatever, and her, oh my God, she would make Michelle Obama's arms look flabby. Like, she's literally just, you can see every sinew like in her arms, and she's so. But she's not like, I don't know what the word is, like, she she's still looks quite, ah, uh-huh, that's it. So she still looks like believable and credible as just somebody who just puts the effort in as opposed to like this ridiculous ripped monster who's, you know, I just, I really enjoyed this film in general. And again, yeah, because I, as you've mentioned, like Devil Wears, I'd only really known her for Devil Wears Prada before this. And she was a sort of, you know, sassy English bitch, which is quite a trope in these types of movies because she's playing sort of second fiddle to the Anne Hathaway character. And yeah, and this she was bloody phenomenal. Really, really good. Nice. Um, my last pick is taking us all the way back to 1944. One of my favourite Billy Wilder movies, and in fact, probably one of my favourite movies, Double Indemnity. So it's co-written by Raymond Chandler, so it's a proper film noir. And this the whole this whole film is sort of centred around kind of double bluffs and making you think that you know something about someone or sort of making you question what you know about someone. So actually the two leads, I'm being cheeky here, the two leads in this are both playing against type because Fred McMurray was known as a comedic character, sort of slapstick, kind of silly, light-hearted roles, and he's playing the very serious insurance rep in this, Walter Neff. And up until this point, Barbara Stanwyck had done probably what you'd call like women's pictures or melodramas, and she was always, you know, the sort of the pure victim in what she'd done or the sort of strong woman, whereas in this, she's just vile. Like, they called her Phyllis in this film because it sounded like syphilis, because her character is just so odious and nasty and twisted, but at the same time, you are kind of kept guessing until the end. Like, 
is she a battered wife or is she scheming? I love this movie. And it, to me, what I think is so surprising, particularly if you think about it, 1944, we're kind of at peak sort of Hollywood studio system where you were essentially assigned a character. Like, you know, Cary Grant was Cary Grant in every movie, you know, Tony Curtis is Tony Curtis in every movie. And it was just like you were given this role to play. Whereas in this, everything is very fluid and very flexible. And the two leads are both playing very, very much against type. So to me, I kind of wonder what the audience reaction was at the time. And especially because Barbara Stanwyck was this really famous brunette and they gave her this hideous blonde wig for this movie. Like it's a fucking sin what's on her feet the whole way through this. It's terrible. But it... It works really well because it is a kind of classic good versus evil morality tale and they use the proper noir lighting the whole way through this, like literally casting her in shadow and Neff in light as much as possible. But it plays around with who they are as characters and who they are as actors as well. And oh, I just love this movie. I could actually, I could talk about it all day, but I think this is a really unusual example in that it, it's peak studio system. And, I, and therefore I feel it's even more unusual to have two lead actors completely playing off what they would normally do so i don't know if you guys have both seen it yeah 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 i've, I've seen it so it's been a while but yeah I, I do remember it has been one of the sort of better film noirs as well it kind of it was right up there in terms of the sort of as, as my daughter would say top tier yeah. top tier noir you know it's, it's really really good and uh, barbara stanwick is just fantastic and there's a scene where she's is she wearing sunglasses and the in store, and they yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it's one of these iconic scenes that you kind of see played out in different types of films. But that was where it was done first, and it was just brilliant. It's such a good look, even though, uh, like you say, with the the blonde wig and everything. But yeah, it works really, really well. And I think at the time when I'd watched that, I had only seen Fred McMurray and sort of comedy roles. Mm -hmm. He's been he was he's been in all sorts of things uh, over his his career. And I think he worked with Billy Wilder quite a few times. Uh, before yeah. and since then, because he was in the apartment as well, yeah, as the sort of the the main guy in charge of the the big office. But yes, I it's definitely against type for both of them. Smashing film. In fact, you've made me want to go and watch it again. I think I've actually got it somewhere, so I'll probably give it a wee, a wee watch over the next day or so. Yeah, I treated myself to the Blu-ray a while ago because I have the the poster in the living room, the pink with the pink backdrop, which is in the yellow dress. I have mm. that up in the living room, but yeah, it's one of my... We watched it at uni when we did like film noir, and I was just like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And the more I read into it and how much they got away with like playing with this duality and, like as I say, of type and character, I was like, this is bloody fascinating. Like, I just I love it. It's one of my favourites. Nice. Your last pick, sir? My last pick is Ben Kingsley in the 2000 film Sexy Beast. Now, Ben Kingsley, National Treasure... Bit of a character actor. Uh, he, Sir Ben Kingsley, I think so, you find. Yes. <laughs> We're a bit closer than that. We don't go in formalities. Myself and Benny. Yeah. <laughs> he came up through the acting ranks through the likes of Shakespeare. And obviously, I mean, I mean, he won an Oscar for fuck's sake, playing Gandhi. You can't get any more mellow than that. And he, he made a sort of career out of that Schindler's List. He was in that with uh, Mr. Taken himself as well. So his career has been pretty much it's been fairly solid but then year 2000 he takes a supporting role in Jonathan Glazer's first major film as Don Logan a sociopath now he's not just a quiet sociopath who kind of flares up now and again he's totally fucking full-on from the moment he is on screen to the moment to, to the, the 
pretty much very end of the film, he's a nutter and he, know, he knows he is. He noises up folk. He gets right in their face. You can see him. He, he actually, he, when he was delivering his lines, you could see the spittle coming out and everything Aww. as well. It was actually, it was, it was actually quite something. Um, I, I read a quote saying that his performance was, there was no subtlety in it at all. The spraying, Saliva lubricated, <laughs> lubricated words, mostly of the F word variety, like a like a jet engine or a machine gun, which uh, I just thought was pretty good as well. Apparently, he uses uh, the word cunt nearly three hundred times in the film. I'm not sure if that's true or not, Ooh, but it definitely sort of record. He uses the word fuck more than four hundred times, and he uses them quite a lot together as well but the the best insult they could do in the whole film was spunk bubble i just think that's a, <laughs> that's a brilliant, it's just brilliant it's just so menacing all the way through it there's at no point does he show any sort of soft side to him at all even when he's on his own and he's shaving he shaves his head and he shaves his his beard off and everything and he's talking to himself. He's talking to himself in an antagonistic way as well. It's just, it's an incredible performance. And it's something that you don't expect in any way because, I mean, like I said, it's Gandhi, for goodness sake. You, you don't expect going to that sort of extreme. And it just, it really made that film more than really kind of ought to be because it was a very small film. I mean, he got uh, nominated for an Academy Award for that role. And can you imagine if he'd won for that? It would, it would, it would have been, oh my goodness, that would have been terrible, you know? Because he would have probably, he would have wanted to swear during the, the acceptance. Yeah. Speech, no doubt. <laughs> Aye, just absolutely fantastic. Just great. Love it. It's one of the first films I'd seen by Jonathan Glazer because he'd done lots of commercials and videos and stuff like that. And just to come away with something as audacious as that. Just brilliant. Obviously, there's other performances in the film, but that's the total of the standout one. Everybody plays off of him. So he's mm -hmm. the, the guy that really is right in everybody's face, as I said, and it's just so good. Just, oh, absolutely brilliant. I take it you must have seen this as kind of staple British thriller. No. I haven't seen it, no. Uh, it was oh, a film I had on my... I haven't recorded it off um, film four or something on the box for ages and then there's another one there you can just kind of keep thinking it's a film I always forget to watch if that makes sense mm -hmm. um, obviously I've not seen it but am I right in saying that Ray Winston's also kind of cast against type in this film it's almost yeah. like the two of them are swapping the roles you'd expect to see them in yeah Ray Winston plays uh, he's a, a former burglar a robber and he's living so we at first you think he's living the high life in Spain, but he's actually, I think he'd been in prison for a number of years before that, and he's just done. He just can't take it anymore. He just wants to go away. So he's he's living in this wee sort of Spanish villa with his, his wife and his, his friend and uh, his friend's wife. So it's he's very sort of downplaying that very reserved character. There's a, going to YouTube, there's a, a scene of Ray Winston and Ben Kingsley and Ben Kingsley is talking at Ray Winston in the, it's a kitchen. And you can actually see Ray Winston's character, Gal, cowering. He's actually physically trying to go into himself. And it's, it's distressing to watch it. Not so much for the fact that Ray Winston's wearing one of these wee shorty night robe type things. I think it was his wife's robe or something in the film he was wearing. It just makes, it's just, oh, it's... 
it's difficult to watch. It really is. But Ray Winston and Speedos is something to see, especially with a dad bot. <laughs> Seriously? Yep. Yeah, but we're talking about dad bots. I think Ray Winston does have a dad yes. bot. Yeah, he's like yeah. yeah, yeah. not got like a Jason Momoa dad bod. <laughs> no. No, but yeah, I seriously recommend this. You, you should uh, give it a watch. It's 90 minutes long. It's not going to take up uh, much of your day watching this one. And you will thank me for it, but you will start quoting Don Logan lines, fortunately. Okay. So that, that that may not be a good thing in a work environment. <laughs> Although they do actually, uh, they're quite relevant, some of them as well. But yeah. Well, that's your choices. And earlier on today, Mary actually put a tweet out asking for your choices. And unlike when I do that, I just get ignored. People actually did respond to her. And maybe I should change her profile picture. I don't know. I don't want to kind of try and uh, make any suggestions as to why she got replies I didn't. But we've got a lot of notifications this time. Um, first, uh, we'll have, um, I'll have what she's podcasting at She's Podcasting. Tom Cruise is the stat. This is an excellent choice. Again, you could Tom Cruise in so many different kind of roles because he does act against type quite a lot over his career, but he never does the same role more than once. And he's excellent, is the start. Yeah, uh, oh, he's one of my favourite bad guys, yeah. Oh, he's absolutely incredible. And as the vet here, Anne Rice was against this. Now, this isn't just a fanboy campaign to stop the cast, this is the creator of the work. But she was won over when she saw him, and he is absolutely brilliant in this. He's so good. Yeah. We also have Claire, at Claire, Claire Ellen Hope, who, she says a cliched one, but hey, I'm honestly on board with it. Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. It's a good one, that, because you automatically think of Jim Carrey, but Kate Winslet as well. This isn't the sort of yeah. roles that she was really known for. And, again, brilliant movie, brilliant performances, and you can't really say much more about that. If you haven't seen that movie, go and see it. It's absolutely excellent. We also have Cat at Cat Butt, who is, I'm just going to read out her tweet here. You could include her boy Brill. How do you pronounce the name, sorry, Mary? Brill. You could include a boy Brill, as I know he said he was really happy when Tarantino used his good boy looks Vazola to fuck everyone over when he revealed to be a dick. Also, <laughs> Ralph finds in Grand Budapest Hotel, as he's usually a villain compared to his kind of uncle. <laughs> The Aye, more meek kind of mild mannered character yeah. than that, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Bros an interesting one because obviously uh, you do more about his work uh, than I did, maybe before in Glorious Bastards and see him as a villain for the first time in that role. Yeah, I mean the thing was he didn't ever seek out what I would call his pretty boy roles, but he just was that kind of type of of German you know, sort of young German actor sort of coming up, and he has you know he's done a sort of really varied body of work prior to Inglourious Bastards in German and in English but I would say this is the kind of I mean Ladies in Lavender was before this but we're not going to call that a mainstream movie it was literally him being mothered by Judy Dench and Maggie Smith but this yeah I mean Tarantino wanted a good looking guy he is a good looking guy but obviously the character is just awful and the thing is again it's that kind of thing where he is charming and he is sweet sometimes but ultimately is just a massive bastard so as the title suggests. <laughs> We've also got, uh, you're going to, to pronounce his last name for me. I don't want to have the Spanish coming at me. Chris Munoz. Uh, also known as Mr. Mary Palmer. He's been a bit, he's been a, he's been a bit overboard with his list, so I'm just going to go from here. <laughs> We've got Heath Ledger as a Joker. Again, I mentioned that earlier on. That's just an incredible performance, regardless how you want to kind of categorise it. That could come up so many times in our topics. 
got Ryan Gosling uh, from Drive, Ryan Reynolds and uh, the voices, Patrick Stewart from Green Room. Which have you seen that? Oh yeah, that's oh, a my good God. movie. I almost picked this myself. That's that's, yeah. a, that's an incredible choice. Um, he's so good in that. Stephen Curry uh, from Hounds of Love, which I haven't seen. Uh, I know you he, both speak about it quite a, Yeah, he's a he's a comedic act, like as in a stand up comedian, has done like really outlandish, ridiculous, over the top comedies, and then is obviously a massive paedophile in this film. So quite a departure. Excellent. So the Choi Min Seek for uh, Desu O and Old Boy. I can't really comment much on that. I haven't seen his other roles. I think right. they were more comedic. I think he was known yeah. as a comedian in South Korea. Robin Williams for one of photo, Matt Damon the Bond Entity. It's a good one actually for topic and uh, people not known for action roles. Yeah. Charlie's for on and Monster. I did think about this one myself. Um I did think about this one. See, Elijah I Wood since... her with dramatic roles. So I didn't really see, feel like this with a departure, so I was kinda I agree. Him. And I'm I'm surprised it hasn't come up more though. And if you check where he's kind of lists online and stuff, she does come up quite a lot. But yeah, I agree. I think she's had a transformation of her appearance in that, but I wouldn't say she was cast against type overall, but that's just my opinion. Sorry, Chris. Atomic Blonde is probably a better shout for that. Yeah. Because yeah. she she obviously it's an action film and she totally kicks ass in it. She's very, very yeah. good in that film, and it is not something you would think she would do. Yeah, I do love her. We also have Elijah Wood for Sin City, which that's a great choice. He is so evilly dark in that. You want to actually see a movie based Oh, you think you want to see a movie like that, and he's, he makes maniac and go, actually, it was better as a wee cameo. <laughs> Albert Brooks from Drive. I haven't seen that either, unfortunately. And Adam Sandler from Uncut Jeffs, which I think is the most overrated movie of last year, but it's another story. I found it a sensory assault I must admit it was I I felt exhausted after watching it but I have to say he is excellent in it Adam Sandler has been known for the odd good role here and there, he just makes some amount of rubbish and why? he can't need the money I think he enjoys doing Jack and Jill look at the money he's getting for these roles these films are incredibly popular and profitable, it's insane Something must like them. Fair play. We've also Andy from the At Bang Bang podcast. It's a very good wrestling podcast if people are into that. He's also picked uh, Ben Kinsley for Sexy Beast. Uh, again, it's a great show. I've not seen the film, as I mentioned, but I do know of the role. I've seen clips of it in that, and I'm familiar with Ben Kinsley, obviously. And we've also got the Best Film Ever podcast at Best Film Ever Pod. And he's went for The Rock and Be Cool. I haven't seen the film either, but I've seen... Uh, clips from it and yeah that's a very good choice because Rock was not really known for his, he's still not really known for his kind of roles actually mm-hmm. it's a very interesting choice and go back a little in the Rock's CV for that one he was in a film called was it Faster? He yes was uh, that was kind of incredible. it was actually pretty good it was a revenge yeah. thriller it was, it was actually a pretty good film and it's not the usual type of role for The Rock it was quite early on I suppose wasn't it in his, his career yeah, it's that kind of film. You look at the poster, for example, you flip back in Netflix and go, oh, that's, you've got an idea what the film's going to be, but you watch it and think, it's actually, that's mm-hmm. better than I give it credit for. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, I've just thought of another one, just very briefly. Angela Lansbury and the Mancurian Candidate, the original movie. Oh, that, oh it's, that's a good movie. That's, that's creepy as fuck. Her performance, yeah. it really is, yeah. because obviously she was known for, well, been Elvis's mum. And obviously for the bed knobs and broomsticks. Yeah, aha, uh-huh. she was like this yeah. either playing the young ingenue or she was always playing like old ladies. So I think of her as murder she wrote, and obviously that is after that. But yeah, she is incredible 
in that role mm -hmm. and she is scary as fuck. Yeah, yeah. I'd thought another couple just as sort of extra ones. Um, obviously, I'd thought of Matt Damon, Henry Fonda, Once Upon a Time in the West. He yeah. basically played the bad guy for the first time here, and he's just mm -hmm. he's he's just evil in this film, just great. Clint Eastwood and Paint Your Wagon, <laughs> which uh, even though it's a western, it's a, a musical, and Clint sings badly. I was going to say, well, or <laughs> no, no, no. Have you not heard? Uh, I talk to the trees. I have been spared that, and it's, I feel like I could the, go the, the rest of my life. <laughs> Yeah, it was the B side of Wandering Star, Lee Marvin's. Oh, I love that number song. Number one hit song. Yeah, and a sort of left field one, Jesse Eisenberg in American Ultra. You've seen that film? It's yeah. him and uh, Kristen Stewart. He's uh, this stoner who is actually uh, almost like a sleeper agent, and he gets activated, which is it's pretty good. And Colin Firth in Kingsman. A wee oh. bit against. Yeah, uh, starts off kind of on tight, but then obviously. Veers away wildly when it's uh, sort of action stuff, and Jesse Plemons in Game Night. Uh, My he was. <laughs> I thought he was particularly good in that, but I was going from more sort of the the best pal role to this very strange mm -hmm. comedic role, which was excellent, really, really good. What surprised me actually, and we took mentioned the film earlier uh, briefly. Nobody mentioned Steve Carell for Foxcatcher. I thought about. That actually, and I also found enough thought about Daniel Craig for Bond because up until then he'd really not been doing anything like that at all. He'd been kind of costume dramas and like Our Friends in the North and stuff like that. So I had thought about that, but yeah, Steve Carell because what was the other one he did? Was he in Little Miss Sunshine? He wasn't Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, yeah. I was so thinking nice. of that as well because it's not quite. A and theme, it's, all, but it's like kind of yeah. I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's more like it's more kind of comedic drama, drama, yeah. comedic role type thing. But for Foxcatcher, I didn't think it was the greatest film. I thought it was a genuinely unnerving film, though. That entire mm. film he, was just unsettling. He is very sinister in that, though. Like he kind of like I felt like every I felt like his head was like always like tilted back, and he was always physically looking down, no matter who he was talking yeah, to. Yeah, it was and weird. And he was very creepy in that. Yeah, yeah not a great film, yeah. but I. Well, that's our choices, and that's your choices. And if there's anything we've missed, or you want to get in touch with us, you can do at Movie Scramble on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Please email John <laughs> for the love of God. Yeah, yeah, come on, for goodness sake. Oh, sorry, you want me to say? Oh, sorry. It's <laughs> podcast at moviescramble.co.uk. I'm the only one that looks at it and it's always empty. It's kind of, it's a reflection of my life. <laughs> yeah, just pretend it's made as it mans it and you'll probably email her. I written off, yeah. If I just put, yeah, sent from Mary, then it'll be dozens of replies. Yeah. But, but, but actually, that we're actually in talks. So just doing the podcast, Mary Scramble. <laughs> Are you kidding me? On, I haven't seen like even a tenth of what you guys have seen, and I still think everything's maverick. So I'm in no position. Yeah, can you imagine maybe Mel Gibson was cast as Batman. And she went, oh, I remember that superhero film Mel Gibson was in the <laughs> real best. <laughs> Something playing cards, yeah. <laughs> Jack Thanks for tuning in. Um, as always, we appreciate it. Where you're listening to us on Spotify, you're downloading us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, your Android device, whatever you get podcasts, we appreciate every single download or stream or even just pretending you listen to it and telling us lies. But if you did enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review, whatever you listen to your podcast. Give us some love, contact us on Twitter. Facebook tells what you like, tells what you don't like. We just like talking to you. 
for lonely people. But until next time, uh, goodbye. Bye. Bye.